Come explore the galaxy and defeat the evil Urquan Masters with Star Control this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back with you as usual once again to talk about a PC game from, I guess we can say, the the 80s and, uh, and 90s, or as I like to call it, the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So we got a big show this week, but uh, before we begin, I guess I should uh, put out a little bit of a programming note. So... Um, I know the last couple of weeks the show has been coming out kind of off schedule. I know, you know, traditionally I would release the shows kind of usually around Thursday evening and, uh, you know, every every other Thursday evening and they'd be there for Friday and people would be able to, you know, listen to it that day or over the weekend or whatever. Well, um, as you notice, maybe the past two episodes have been coming out kind of Sunday-ish kind of a thing. So uh, it seems as though lately with uh, life being the way it is, is Sunday tends to be a better day for me to uh, to record and put out the show. So I think that this is going to be the new release schedule. So from uh, from episode 16 on, uh, expect the show Sundays, Sunday, probably Sunday evenings. And, uh, you know, it'll either be out then for you to enjoy on Sunday evening or Monday morning for your commute or whatever other time during the week you like to listen to the show. I know a lot of podcasts come out Sundays and I think I've learned why it's because people tend to have more time to do things on the weekends. So, um, so that's that aside from that, uh, the past two weeks have been very, very busy, uh, in my life. You know, there's kind of those times where people say when it rains, it pours. Well, it's kind of been doing that for, for me and Fran the last little while. Uh, and sadly it hasn't been, you know, super incredible stuff. Uh, I can't remember if I talked about it last time, but you know, uh, our, our second car broke down, so we ended up having to get uh, a new car. So now we have a nice new 2013 Subaru Outback. Super awesome. But, uh, you know, on top of that, we had some plumbing issues at the house and the dishwasher stopped working properly and just a whole bunch of things that all happened at the same time. Kind of these weird, unforeseen, stupid things that happen when you own a car and you own a home and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, we've been busy running around trying to resolve things and and everything like that. So it's actually nice to finally sit down and, and relax a bit and record the podcast and, uh, and have a little chat about something that doesn't involve uh, water spilling everywhere or breaking down in the middle of the highway or negotiating on car prices or anything like that. So that's my life. And uh, I know how interesting that is. And instead of talking about this some more, let's get on to the news. All right, time for the news. So a few weeks back to begin with, uh, I talked about Lori and Corey Cole's new game, Hero U. Well, uh, I I recall saying back then that, you know, they were coming out, they were talking about the project and, and doing all this stuff and advertising, but they uh, were looking for kind of the right time to actually begin their, their Kickstarter campaign. Well, the time is now. The Kickstarter began, uh, I believe it was last week. And uh, they're looking to raise $400,000 to make uh, their Quest for Glory-inspired turn-based role-playing game. So 23 days remain on that project. They're about a quarter of the way there. I think as of uh, as of today, 
they uh, they have about $130,000. And uh, if you did like Quest for Glory, as I said last time I talked about this project, definitely go and check them out. They have uh, a site over at Kickstarter. You can just Google Hero U or Quest for Glory or Corey Cole or Lori Cole, and it should come up. And, um, you know, if you just Google around the web, there's quite a bit of press. There's an article on Kotaku. And actually, surprisingly, something on the New York Post. So we're kind of getting into a bit of mainstream media on this stuff. So, uh, yeah, definitely definitely take a look at that if you had any interest in the Quest for Glory franchise way back in the day. Next in the news, it has also been a very big week for GOG.com, good old games, where I get quite a few of the games for uh, for this show. They had kind of a summer event where, uh, where they announced quite a few things. Uh, the one thing that I want to talk about here, there were quite a few announcements, but the coolest one in my mind is that 50 of their titles are now available for the Mac. Uh, they teamed up with the developer of Boxer, which is uh, an emulator somewhat based on DOSBox that I've talked about here and there. And I believe uh, one of the listeners uh, actually emailed in about it at one point. Yeah, so he has begun a process of kind of modifying Boxer for GOG to make packaging games much more seamless, uh, seamless for the Mac. So instead of having, you know, Boxer's nice interface and a library and everything, he wanted to design it so that a company like Good Old Games could take Boxer, take the source code or, you know, the source files of the game, put them into this kind of stripped down version of Boxer and just have it launch like any other program. So there's no configuration options or anything like that. It's more of a easy to use, download, set up and install and, you know, just kind of run it right out of the box. And there's a really, really great post on the Boxer site from the developer where he discusses what he had to do and what we can expect from Boxer and GOG together going forward. And uh, you can find that article at uh, boxerapp.com slash blog slash 2012 slash 10 slash 21 slash positively dash agog. But I will link that in the show notes. You don't have to copy that down. But yeah, lots of cool stuff coming out of GOG. I mean, you could always run uh, their apps on the Mac, you know, if they were running on DOSBox in the first place, because all you had to do was basically install, you know, download the files, unpack them, move them onto the Mac, and then just use kind of an independent Mac version of a DOSBox install. And, uh, and you know, they would run fine. But this is kind of a really cool step forward for people who don't want to deal with that stuff. They just want to play these great games and... Uh, you know, I, I ran SimCity on my MacBook Pro and it works just fine. It works really great. And, uh, you know, that's kind of one of the bigger name games that uh, that they ported over to the Mac. But uh, there's lots coming after that. Well, actually, speaking of SimCity, I didn't actually, I didn't plan to mention SimCity 2000. But in SimCity 5 news, uh, we finally have a release date. So SimCity 5 or SimCity 2013 or whatever you want to call it. Uh, is coming out on March 5th, 2013, just in time for my birthday on March 21st. So maybe that'll be a a birthday gift to myself. (laughs) Uh, It's currently in beta, and uh, despite some of the controversy that I've already talked about surrounding uh, this new SimCity game with regard to certain elements of of automation and uh, the always online DRM type stuff, I continue to be incredibly excited and incredibly excited for this game, incredibly excited to play it. The Glassbox engine that they have uh, you know, the game running on seems super incredible. The graphics seem great. So, you know, I'm really happy. And uh, there's an article on The Verge where they talk about this. And I will, as usual, post that in the show notes. So finally for the news, uh, last week, amidst all that other stuff that was going on, uh, James, local listener, James from uh, from GamesAspect.com, he's a writer over there, he dropped off a box of three and a half inch floppies on my doorstep. 
Uh, I posted a picture of him on the Facebook group. There's tons of stuff in this box that he gave me, including the discs for X-Wing, Quest for Glory. I think Space Quest V is in there, Commander Keen, uh, some stuff for Wing Commander Privateer, and more. I was so excited about this that my wife started kind of looking at me funny because I was kind of giggling with glee over this little box of discs. So thanks so much, James. What a really cool thing to have. And, you know, I just, I, I really appreciate that uh, you were able to go out of your way to actually drop them off at my house. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So before we get to the meat of the episode or the core of the episode, um, got a couple of emails this week, but I will uh, start with this one from Andreas because he is responding a bit to the last show on syndicates. So Andreas writes, hi, Joe, I can't believe you didn't know Molyneux other than from Fable. You'd be surprised to hear what he did in PC gaming. Populous, Theme Park, Dungeon Keeper and Black and White are only a few examples of games he's responsible for. I did learn a lot about Syndicate. I didn't know anything about the chip or those corporations acting as the government. Also, the SNES version seems to be quite a faithful port. Other than the ability to buy extra information about the mission, everything you mentioned is in the game. The music also sounds a bit better. Well, thanks, Andreas. And you know, it's just weird because I usually feel like I'm really up on this stuff. And I don't know why I kind of dropped the ball on, on Peter Molyneux. Um... I did play a lot of, I played Theme Park and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I'm a huge fan of Black and White. I really like these kind of God games. I don't know, maybe that says something about my psyche. I don't know. But uh, for some reason, it just, I have no idea why. It just never dawned on me that, you know, Fable Peter Molyneux was, you know, the same guy from Bullfrog and, you know, the his follow-on, you know, Lionhead and all that, that it was the same guy and he founded the company and all this. And he's kind of responsible for all these other games, many of which I either played or I know a lot about. Uh, you know, Populous is a game that I never played, but I really want to and all that. So anyways, uh, hey, even I can learn some stuff. You know, I, I don't claim to be an expert on this stuff. I just uh, I do a bunch of Google foo and, and try and find some information on these games. And, um, you know, I can even be surprised. So so that's really wonderful. Thanks a lot for that email. And I am glad that uh, you and a couple of others who've mentioned that uh, they learned a lot about Syndicate. I have a coworker that listens to the show and, uh, you know, he couldn't stop going going on about, you know, just uh, being back in there, you know, when I played the sounds and when I played the music and the intro from the game that he really, um, he really enjoyed it and it took him back a lot. And, you know, that happens to me when I'm playing these games to do research and when I'm reading about them and finding out facts, it, it really does take me back to that time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's real, real fun. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so on to the meat of the show, which uh, I guess if this is the meat, what was the last part of the show? The salad? The appetizer? Soup? I don't know. Whatever. Anyways, uh, this week I am happy and very excited to be talking about a seminal game series called Star Control. So Star Control is a series of three games developed by Toys for Bob and published by Accolade. Uh, The first game, named Star Control, was released in the year 1990. (laughs) Well, again, we find ourselves in the in the year 1990. So I guess this is yet more proof that 1990 was an epic year for PC gaming with Red Baron and Wing Commander, and you know I think quite a few of the games that I've talked about so far all came out in 1990. There must have been something in the water that year, or this was one of those uh, tipping points or whatever that Mal- Malcolm Gladwell talks about, where everything kind of uh, it was a perfect storm, quote unquote, of uh, of circumstances that made a whole bunch of great games come out this year. So. 
onto the genre as I usually do. Um, Star Control itself and the Star Control series in general don't quite fit into these nice little genre boxes I like to stick games into. Uh, I know I generally focus on a single game in the series and then kind of skim over the rest of them. However, in this case, I'll have to talk about both Star Control 1 and 2 in some detail since they're honestly both quite a bit different from each other. So Star Control 1 released in, or just Star Control, it was never really called Star Control 1, uh, released in 1990. And uh, it's sort of a strategy action hybrid, whereas Star Control 2, which released in 1992, is more of an adventure action hybrid game. So they're both action games with other elements. Great. That makes sense. No problem. Well, sure, the action elements are in common. However, some people, and I think myself included in this, claim that the action elements of the game, at least in the second game, are the secondary aspect. So does that make the first game a strategy game with action elements? Sure, but there's also elements of resource management in there, and it's kind of turn-based, but in other times it's real-time, whereas Star Control 2 has more of an adventure storyline. However, it also encompasses things like space exploration, one-on-one action combat, shipbuilding, upgrading, and, you know, a lot more stuff. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that these games really do defy genres. They're kind of a genre unto themselves. With that, let's get into the first game. On to the story of Star Control. Well, the Star Control games play very differently. They all do take place in the same universe. The original Star Control is structured kind of as a historical simulation of the conflict between the fleets of the evil Urquan hierarchy and the Alliance of Free Stars. The game itself doesn't provide much in the way of story development since it consists primarily of replaying a few preset scenarios representing the great battles of the conflict. Uh, As we've seen with many games thus far, including last week's of Syndicate, uh, the background of the original Star Control exists in the 50-page manual. Interspersed with game instructions, the manual describes the world and the conflict via a series of press dispatches, legal documentation, and communiques. The initial dispatch at the beginning of the manual goes like this. Contact with alien beings reported. Rumor of stellar threat confirmed. The International Press Dispatch, March 12, 2612, by Lee Quo Garibaldi, Press Dispatch Interstellar Correspondent. Rumors of a hostile stellar threat to the Earth and its surroundings were confirmed yesterday in an extraordinary meeting between a Star Control scout ship and a Chenjesu vessel near the Sarah's base. The first message exchanged between the spaceships was as simple as it was shocking. Attention, Earth vessel, we are not hostile to your species. However, we must inform you of an immediate threat to your world and people. The Urquan hierarchy is coming. Our defenses are crumbling. We need your immediate assistance. Please respond. The results of the ensuing conference were made available to the International Press Dispatch by Interstellar Lasefax. The meeting, held aboard the cruiser Space Duster, lasted several hours. A collection of intergalactic journalists waited anxiously as the Chenjesu diplomats outlined their concerns to Star Control General Juan O'Reilly and High Provost Ivana Orkochev, Earth's highest-ranking diplomat. Earth's negotiators expressed their dismay that they had not been previously informed of the existence of alien forms, or the fact of an interstellar war between them. The Chenjeshu replied that the Alliance's Supreme Council hadn't judged Earth strong enough to join the Alliance. Moreover, Earth's initial position was on the far side of the Corward Front. Only in the last few months has the hierarchy approached our solar system. The Chenjesu emphasized that, first, the Urquan hierarchy, a rigid union of ancient Urquan slavers and their minions, is on the verge of annihilating the Alliance of Free Stars. Second, 
Alliance efforts to placate the Urquans through negotiation have been in vain. The hierarchy's representatives slew three Alliance diplomats at, conclusion, at the conclusion of one particularly fruitless session. Thirdly, a hierarchy triumph would be a disaster for known space. The Chenjeshu moderators told of Urquan coercion of several unlikely races into the hierarchy, of threats delivered to spot the elders, of an active military alliance the likes of which has never seen the blackness of true space. The Chanjesu elders wove crystal silvers of detail into their story, as Ivana Orkochev later told the assembled correspondence. The High Provost described the Chanjesu intensity, which went well beyond the crackling energy fields from the aliens, or that the aliens commonly emanate. Indeed, the dramatic effect at times interfered with the Space Duster's control consoles. General O'Reilly spoke of visible alarm in the aliens' emotive electrical outburst. A high-level cabinet meeting will be held next week in Calcutta, India, one of the United Nations rotating capitals. The delegation from the belt is presently after blasting its way towards Earth. An atmosphere of high drama is almost palpable at StarCon HQ in Geneva. So basically here we're saying that uh, the Chenjeshu arrived at Earth and uh, told us that the Urquan are coming and that they need our help. Uh, this results in a document being drafted which is entitled A Binding Consenting Concord Between the Alliance of Free Stars and Earth. This document outlines the or sorry, this document outlines the agreement uh, for Earth to join the Alliance of Free Stars and its responsibilities toward it. Earth's space forces, known as Star Control, are placed into the Alliance's command structure in defense of the Alliance against the evil Urquan hierarchy. So this is where we're left to play the game. The races of the Alliance in defense against the enslaved battle thrall races of the Urquan. As you read through the game, the names of the races, ships, and other historical events start to give you kind of an idea of the fun and quirky nature of this universe, despite the fact that the story seems somewhat serious as I describe it. Well, that's it for the story such as it is in the first game. Uh, we're focusing on this single conflict between these two interstellar powers. Starting up the game brings us to the uh, main activity menu where we take a look at the different options for gameplay. Uh, they rank from very straightforward to somewhat complex. Uh, there's three. Firstly, practice is sort of a fully definable skirmish mode. You can choose to pit any two ships against each other in one-on-one -on -one combat. Uh, so in the story section, I glossed over something that really defines the core of this game. The Alliance and the Hierarchy are each composed of seven separate races. Each of these races is incredibly unique. In addition to the cultural differences between the two races, each race fields a different warship. A race's ship is suited to that race's characteristics and general level of kind of techno technological development. So say we take a look at Alliance races. The Chenjesu are probably the most technologically advanced race. They're described as crystalline in composition and field a ship known as the Chenjesu Brood Home. This is a relatively large and slow ship which has a large amount of fuel and crew. Fuel is used to move and fire weapons. It's a limited but renewable resource. Once a ship runs out of fuel, it can no longer fire its weapons. However, as long as it's not trying to fire weapons again, uh, the fuel slowly regenerates. Crew is the game's representation of the ship's health. When all the crew of the ship are killed via either enemy weapons or other hazards like smashing into planets and things like that, uh, the ship is destroyed. So how does the Broodhome fight? Each Star Control ship has a primary and secondary weapon. The primary tends to be a purely offensive weapon, 
And the secondary can either be defensive or offensive, depending on the race and the type of ship that you're using. So using our example, the Broodhome's primary weapon is the Photon Crystal Shard. The shard is released in a very single very resistant unit. This single parent shard will fly until it is released. When released, it splits into eight submunitions, which spread out in different directions. And, uh, you know, because of this, they uh, have a, a relatively low rate of fire. You can't fire too many of these main munitions uh, one after the other because they take quite a bit of energy to generate. The second weapon is the Doggy, D-O-G-I. This is a homing weapon, which sneaks in kind of behind a target, bounces it around, and steals units of its fuel, making it very difficult for an enemy to fire back because it's kind of it creates kind of a drain on the enemy's energy reserves. The Brood Home is big and slow. This is contrasted by other races which have small fast ships such as uh, the Spathy from the Hierarchy. Uh, their ship is called the Spathy Discriminator in the first game. I believe it's called the Spathy Eluder in the second game, but it's effectively the same ship. They just changed the name of it. Uh, this ship carries quite a bit of crew, but is better designed for running away than standing and fighting, which is in keeping with the Spathy's fearful and spastic nature. They primarily fire what are known as punt guns, so up to five projectiles of the, from these punt guns can be active at once. They're extremely small, move fast, and have a fairly good range, allowing the ship to fire from a good distance, which then allows the ship to turn, run, and use its secondary weapon, the BUTT missile. That's B-U-T-T, -T, all in capitals. So BUTT stands for Backward Utilizing Tracking Torpedoes. They fire, of course, out the back of the ship. Uh, they do low damage and really do just serve to uh, dissuade pursuit so the Spathy can uh, can run away. So, you know, even here, you could see a bit of kind of the, the tongue-in-cheek humor that uh, that the designers of Star Control put into the game. So, all ships range from slow to fast, lightly to heavily armed, and truly are all completely unique. It is definitely worthwhile to practice with all the ships to learn their strengths and weaknesses, how they stack up against each other, and how to kind of fight or defend against each one. So this is what the practice mode is for. So now that I've spoken about the ships, races, weapons, and stuff like that, another somewhat unique feature of Star Control Space Combat is a great effort to model what we can believe would be realistic physics. So if you remember way back when to episode two, where I talked Wing Commander, and if you haven't listened to that episode, you really should, because Wing Commander is, is a really great series, which I may revisit at some point in the future. Um, so when I was talking about Wing Commander, I pointed out how that game didn't really model spaceflight very accurately. Spaceships flew like planes. In Star Control, spaceships fly like spaceships. Uh, they have mass, they have inertia, and are affected by gravity, and, and, you know, and more. So if you thrust forward, the only way to come to a stop is to rotate your ship around and then thrust in the opposite direction. Bigger ships accelerate and turn more slowly than smaller ships, um, and turning requires you to rotate your ship and then thrust in your new direction, which will kind of bend your course towards where you want to go. Uh, it definitely does take some getting used to. This isn't your standard flight simulator kind of, uh, kind of situation. Also, the combat zone has wrapping edges. So if you fly off the bottom of the screen, your ship appears again at the top, kind of like in, uh, in Asteroids, in the super old arcade game Asteroids. This can be used to your advantage in both attacking enemies and escaping from them and you know at times if you're not paying attention it can also be uh a little bit detrimental because you're going to end up in uh in a place where you don't necessarily want to be 
So now that I've talked a lot about the practice mode, uh, space combat is also the primary focus of the second game mode, which is called melee, or melee, or however you want to say it. Melee, or melee, mode uh, pits seven ship fleets of alliance and hierarchy against each other, so you have one ship kind of from each race. Players alternate choosing which ship will fight, and they remain with that ship until it is destroyed. The player that destroys all of the opponent's ships first wins the melee. Finally, there is the full game mode. In this mode, players play through scenarios in which resource gathering, management, and ship building come into play. There are nine predefined scenarios. So a very simple scenario is described a bit like this. This is a scenario one, beginner's luck. An introductory scenario in which you learn to establish forts and mines. Few ships and stars are found. Either side is victorious when its forces completely destroy the enemy. So scenarios are played out in a constantly rotating star field, and uh, you control your fleet from what is known as the fleet command view. Uh, here you have the ability to move your ships from star to star, establishing colonies and mines, which supply your side with Starbucks used to build additional ships and colonists to crew them. Uh, ships are built at your star base, which is uh, usually placed kind of at the back of your territory and actually can be moved from, from star to star. However, it is very slow to do that. Uh, additionally, you can fortify star systems against enemy attack. Generally, scenarios are won when the opposite side is completely destroyed. This mode also contains ship-to-ship -ship combat, as we've seen in the other section. It occurs when two or more ships of uh, opposite sides occupy the same star. Scenarios really are a lot of fun, as they do require a little bit more strategic thinking than just the straight-up melee sessions where you kind of go in and, uh, and, and blast your enemies. Uh, you can also approach things in many different ways. Um, you know, so do you just turtle up and build your forces and resources up to defend against you know enemy attacks and try and come in later on with overwhelming force, or do you dive right in trying to catch your opponent unaware with your limited forces that you start out with? So these nine scenarios, in addition to a full scenario editor that comes with the game, really do allow for tons and tons of replayability in the first Star Control. Any Star Control game can be played by uh, two human players, a human versus the computer, or even two computer players if you just want to see the AIs beat up each other. Um, additionally, there are some automation options, which can assist human players who only want to concentrate on a single aspect of the full game. So we have cyborg mode, which leaves kind of the strategic planning decisions to the player, so where to fortify, where to build mines, which planets to colonize, and all that kind of thing. And it will invoke computer control during combat. Cytron mode, has the computer making the strategic decisions of where to colonize, mine, fortify, and all that, but when combat occurs, the player takes command. Uh, in addition, a computer skill level of standard, good, or awesome can be set, which, of course, affects the skill at which both computer-controlled opponents and allies perform. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So I'm going to talk about tech focus for each individual game. So now, for now, I'll stick to the first game, so I won't have a ton to say here, but for its time, uh, you know, Star Control was fairly standard when it came to technical requirements. Uh, the game supported 256 color VGA graphics, keyboard or joystick control, and had a MIDI score compatible with the Roland MT32, Adlib, Tandy, and P. 
PC speaker. Uh, aside from that, you know, it was um, just a fairly standard uh, standard game when it came to technology. It wasn't groundbreaking in, in many ways like that, where, where this game really was special was the way it defied genres and the way methods of, you know, gameplay and control and realistic physics and all that kind of thing. So that's all I have to say for here, but uh, let's get on to our favorite part, the development story. So, on to Star Control's dev story. Star Control was created by a small game developer called Toys for Bob. This company was created by two men, Paul Reich III, and, or maybe Paul Rich III, Reich, Rich, Rich, I'll say Rich, Reich, I'll say Reich. Okay, I'll say it, it's probably wrong, send me an email if you know I'm wrong, because uh, I do like to be right about such things. And so, Paul Reich and Fred Ford. Paul Reich III started up his gaming career playing Dungeons and Dragons, like many of us did. He and his friends played the game as teenagers, and as teenagers, they actually formed a company to make fantasy role-playing game books. This landed him a job at TSR, the makers of Dungeons and Dragons. But uh, Reich decided what he really wanted to do was to make video games. Uh, he soon started doing just that. His first title was Archon. Which he, uh, which he co-designed in 1982 for Electronic Arts. More games followed, including things like Mail Order Monsters and, uh, and other games like that. Many of these efforts went on to become some of the classics of early computer gaming. Reich's games tend to be, tended to be marked by a combination of various elements of other games, which he would combine together to produce new ideas. For example, Archon combined the strategy of chess with arcade action, Players moved their pieces around on a tiled board, and when two pieces met, they would duel in a two-dimensional arena, and the loser would be removed from the game. Uh, this allowed Reich to experiment with having some pieces be stronger in some squares than in others, in effect using arcade aspects to add depth to the strategy of the game. His other games were also similarly deep. As strong a game designer, though, as Reich was, he was not at all a programmer. Uh, for the earlier projects that he worked on, he worked with various programmers to get the titles done. But while working on one particular game called The Adventures of Elmo in the Fourth Dimension, his programmer suddenly quit and he had to cancel a project. At this point, Reich realized he needed to find another programmer to work with if he was to continue his, his job of making games that, that he truly did enjoy. Uh, Reich would eventually hook up with Fred Ford. Now, Ford's first programming job was working on Japanese games, most of which were never actually published in the United States. After that, he drifted in and out of various programming jobs, including work on uh, a Unix windowing system, uh, CAD, computer-aided design, computer-aided modeling software, and graphic software such as paint programs, things work in desktop publishing, and uh, business presentation software. Ford was introduced to Reich when some mutual friends realized that Reich needed a programmer and that Ford was looking to work on something more fun than what he was doing at the moment. In 1989, the two decided they should work together on what they really enjoyed, making games. And they formed a partnership, which they would call Toys for Bob. 
So their first game was, of course, Star Control. As we've discussed, Star Control pits one or two players against each other in a battle for ownership of the worlds of the Alliance. Much like Reich's previous game, Archon, the game combines slow, methodical, strategic gameplay along with fast-paced action sequences. The great world, races, and ships that they created pulled from the two men's love of science fiction. In the game manual, they credit a huge list of sci-fi authors as their inspiration, including Orson Scott Card, Larry Niven, Andre Norton, David Brin, Robert A. Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, Alan Dean Foster, and you know many, many more. Most of these authors I, I love and I've been reading my whole life. Uh, of course, the small operation that was Toys for Bob didn't have the money or resources to develop, sell, and market you know, a, a AAA title computer game. So as many small developers did and still do today, they got together with a publisher in this, clay, in this case, Accolade. So Star Control released in 1990 to great success. Its unique blended gameplay style, hugely varied chips and races, and quirky humor captured the hearts of gamers and quickly formed a rabid and loyal fan base. So the original Star Control was a great success. And what does that usually mean? Of course, both Toys for Bob and Accolade were happy to gear up for Star Control 2. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So let's see, re- reset my topic pointer and slide back to story, but this time with Star Control 2 in mind. So whereas Star Control was more of a historical reenactment of the Urquan Slave War, Star Control 2 takes a very different approach. This game has much deeper story than the first. While the original game only told you story in the manual, Star Control 2 has much more of an adventure game slash role-playing game flavor to it. There's a very well-written and detailed account of the backstory going you know, back, far back as the 1930s in the manual, and it does certainly bear reading. However, I came across an audio performance of the game intro that came on the soundtrack included with the GOG release, so I will play that right now. It is the year 2155. The people of Earth now travel between the stars. Following the sad lessons of the Little War, a unified Earth knew a century of golden peace and prosperity. Glorious dreams dashed by the arrival of a hostile armada. Earth and her partners in the Alliance of Free Stars faced a monstrous adversary. The predatory Orquan. And its hierarchy of battle thralls. There were many great battles, yet Earth was losing. Then, far across space, an amazing discovery was made, deep beneath the surface of an alien world. An underground city, filled with the technological wonders of the Precursors, an ancient and powerful race who vanished in the 
thousand centuries ago. But the Orquan swept through the nearby stars, stranding our scientific team here. Twenty years have passed. We have continued our research. We now know what the precursors built here. It is a factory. A factory for building starships. But there are only enough materials to build the skeleton of one vessel. Yet that must be enough. Because you must pilot the vessel and return to Earth. And if the war with the Urquan still rages, fight for Earth and the Alliance as well as you can. Awesome. So as the game begins, you are entering the Sol star system to make contact with the Earth and find out how the war is going. Well, you quickly find out that the war is, in fact, not going well. It actually turns out that we lost. Uh, before you arrive at Earth, you are encountered by an Urquan drone that tells you that Earth is a slave holding of the Urquan and may not be approached for any reason. In addition, approaching the star base in orbit of Earth is also forbidden. The drone then jumps to hyperspace to inform the Urquan occupation fleet of your transgression. Ignoring the warning, you approach Earth and find it is locked under a red energy shield. It's completely inaccessible to you. However, there is that starbase that you were told was off limits. Well, we didn't listen this far, so let's not listen again. Checking it out, you see it is in fact crewed by humans. Uh, the starbase is supposed to be resupplied by the Urquan every few years. I think it was every four or five years, and it's been seven or eight years, and it has in fact not yet, uh, it hasn't been resupplied. Systems are failing, food and other resources are low, and you are asked, and in fact you are begged, to provide help. So that was the intro and the first little bit of the story. Now we will go on to the gameplay. As I mentioned before, Star Control 2 is quite a different game from the first entry. One thing that remained almost completely unchanged from the first game is the ship-to-ship -ship combat. Aside from the addition of some new races on either side, combat encounters occur in exactly the same manner with exactly the same ground rules as they did before. Star Control 2 even maintains the melee gameplay mode where you can engage in straight-up combat with up to two players, though in this game they call it Super Melee instead of just Melee, because apparently the sequel is more super than the original one. Uh, you know, this melee mode, of course, is a must if you don't want to have your butt handed to you on your first combat of the full game where losing actually matters. Uh, the full story mode, though, is where Star Control 2 really shines. Instead of merely playing through scenarios, you have a full-blown adventure story to deal with. This game is much deeper and much more involved than the original. We left off the story where you are being asked to help out by resupplying the starbase with some much-needed minerals. This introduces you to how you'll be spending the bulk of your time in Star Control 2. Resource gathering is how you are able to maintain your ship and crew and progress through the game. So, we're in the Sol system with all the planets we know and love, including Pluto, since this game came out back in 1992 when Pluto was still a planet. Uh, you navigate your flagship across the solar system and enter orbit of each planet and its moons. Upon entering orbit, you have the option to perform scans for minerals, energy sources, or biologicals. Scanning the planet reveals these mineral deposits in addition to general info about the particular stellar body that you are worried about. 
The most important thing to look at here are the classifications for temperature, weather, and tectonic activity. To collect mineral deposits and other items, you have to send a lander down to the planet. These three indications give you an idea of the degree of risk you'll be exposing your lander to. Higher temperature means there will be more hot spots on the surface, and uh, you know these are kind of areas where flames will pop up out of the ground and travel short distances. If your lander gets caught in the fire, some of its crew will be killed. Like in space combat, if all the crew on the lander dies, you lose the lander. The same goes for tectonics and weather. These are classified from class 1 to 8. The higher the class, the more destructive they are. High weather class planets will have large storms that can destroy your lander with lightning, and high tectonic activities will have these kind of localized earthquakes, and the higher the class, the more frequent these earthquakes are, and again, if your lander passes through them or stays in them too long, it will be destroyed. Of course, being that this is a game, the more dangerous the planet, generally the more valuable the minerals that are likely to be found on it. Uh, minerals are classified into eight different groups, from common, which are worth one credit per unit, up to exotics, which are worth 25 per unit. So, collecting some minerals and returning to the space station triggers the next kind of story-driving forward conversation. You contact the station commander, and he takes the minerals you provide him to repair and resupply the station. This takes a bit of time, which you know kind of is represented in the game by uh, the screen fading out and fading back in. When he comes back online, he gives you some background info. So... The Earth lost the war and was given a choice by their Orquan conquerors. Either humanity joined the Orquan hierarchy as battle thralls like the other races have that uh, you fight against, or they could be turned into a slave race and blocked off from the universe. They chose to be slaves. A strong force of battle thralls were stationed on the moon to enforce the blockade of Earth. In addition, the other alliance or the other races of the Alliance of Free Stars were either run off or enslaved or, you know, exterminated. As much as the humans on the space station would love to help you out, the occupying force on the base on the moon makes it impossible. But wait, when you were searching around, you visited the moon, and uh, all that was there was an abandoned base and some biological robots roaming the surface, sending out recorded transmissions to make it look like the base was still operational. With this news, the Starbase throws in with you in your attempt to free Earth and reform the Alliance of Free Stars. The base commander places the facilities of the Starbase and its shipyard at your service. This is where the second aspect of the game comes in. As you heard in the intro, your precursor ship is a mere skeleton. It can hold 50 crew, it's very slow, it turns very slowly, it's unmaneuverable, and uh, it can hold little cargo. Gathering minerals allows you to upgrade your ship with new modules and build new support craft. Initially, your fleet consists of only your flagship and a single Earthling cruiser. So this is a very fun part of the game, at least in my estimation, because there's no rules as to how you can upgrade your ship. It has limited space for expansion modules, but how you fill them is completely up to you. You can equip your flagship as a warship with huge dynamos to power many weapon systems, uh, you know, lots of engines and maneuvering thrusters. You can equip it as a crew carrier with many, many, many crew compartments. Uh, this will allow you to travel and take a lot of damage for a long time before you need to head back to, to the soul system to replenish your crew. Uh, you can equip it as a cargo vessel with huge carrying capacity for minerals and bio samples or anything in between. Um, and, you know, if you don't want to invest money to equip your flagship for strong defense, 
you can add up to 12 escort vessels, which will fight for you. Initially, you'll only have access to built Earthling cruisers, which are fairly slow and fire uh, heat-seeking nuclear missiles from long range. However, the fact that uh, you only start out with these, but you do end up having the ability to make more, brings us to yet another aspect of the game. So as I said, your goal is to free Earth by defeating the Urquan. This can't be done alone. The Alliance must be restored. Uh, so you leave the Sol system and push up into hyperspace. This allows you to quickly travel to nearby stars and continue your mineral exploitation duties. Uh, as you do this, you'll encounter other alien races who will generally need your help. You can attack them outright if you don't want allies, but uh, you know that's not really the best idea. Your best plan is to probably talk to them and see what they want. The trick is to find out to see what is to find out what they want or need. Uh, usually, doing something for them will will get them to join up with the alliance. You know, this will allow that race to be added to your crew, and uh, it will allow you to build their ships for your defense fleet that will uh, escort your um, your flagship. So, as you progress through the game, you find out the Urquan effectively abandoned blockading Earth because of an internal conflict with the Core Ah, who are a subspecies of Urquan who believes in eradicating all life in the galaxy as opposed to enslaving it, which is what the Orquan like to do. The winner of this war gains access to the Samatra, a precursor starship with unparalleled power. Uh, the game plays until a final confrontation with the Samatra. In a victory sequence where uh, you succeed in destroying the ship, you actually do destroy it, but you narrowly escape at the last moment and uh, you are rendered totally unconscious. On awakening, you find out that you've won, the Orquan are gone, and Earth is free. As it turns out, though, this game wasn't either. Ha this game also wasn't happening in real time. It was, in fact, a historical simulation, just like the first. However, as opposed to being a computer simulation, uh, you, as the player, have been retelling this story to your grandchildren. Star Control 2 has one of the most satisfying endings that I've experienced in a long time. It really does make you feel good, and it does reward you for putting in the time to complete the game. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So I have in my notes here, Tech Focus 2. So on to the Tech Focus. Uh, this will really kind of be more of a combined Tech Focus slash dev story since I did the bulk of the uh, the initial dev story for Star Control 1, but I do want to talk about some very unique, uh, both technical and uh, community features of Star Control 2. So with regard to the technical specifications of the game, they did increase a bit from the original. While the game still runs on older hardware, the recommended specs for Star Control 2 were a 386-20 MHz and a double-speed CD-ROM. Now, this game supported only VGA and MCGA graphics, unlike the first game, which supported kind of VGA and MCGA at the top end, but also EGA and all kind of the, you know, Hercules monochrome all the way down. And um, so it supported VGA 256 colors and required at least 580K of free conventional memory. If you wanted to play the game off the hard drive, as opposed to only from the CD, you also needed around 10 megs of hard drive space. So one very, very cool aspect of Star Control 2 was the music. While the music in the first game was great, 
The music in Star Control 2 is incredibly memorable. Though it sounds like MIDI to uh, the untrained ear, mine included, it was actually created using the ProTracker mod technology created for the Amiga. So instead of tracing digital signals coming in from actual musical instruments like MIDI does, so let's say you had a MIDI keyboard or something like that, um, ProTracker stored digital samples of musical instruments and allowed the creation of music using just a computer. No studio equipment at all required. It allowed users to create sequences of notes called patterns, which could be chained together and looped and whatever to create a song. Now, this system would output music in the mod, MOD format, as opposed to the mid, MID format of MIDI. Now, not only was this tool very, very cool because it allowed basically anyone who felt like it to, uh, to create music on a computer, uh, the way Toys for Bob went about gathering the music was very cool too. So instead of hiring a composer to create it all with a common theme and all that stuff like like you would normally do in a game and like we've seen you know done a hundred times in uh, in all the games that uh, that I've covered already, uh, the developers instead ran a contest where anyone who wanted to could compose a track based on a description of Star Control 2. This made for some very, very creative and wildly differing music styles in the game, which all work amazingly well. In fact, the Star Control 2 soundtrack is so well-liked, there's an ongoing project which was started back in 2002, run by the Precursor's remixing team, to remix and play around with the original score. The team consists of some of the original artists who submitted the songs and won, in addition to uh, some that submitted and didn't, and uh, you know just additional community members and people who uh, became interested in the project. On their site, they say that their mission statement is to bring to all Star Control 2 fans wonderful Star Control 2 inspired music, not just remakes of the old songs, but also totally different versions and brand new songs. So that's kind of a very, very cool aspect, I think. It's really great when you can push stuff out to the community like that and have the fans kind of input into uh, into the new game. I think that kind of thing is happening a lot more now with uh, with the whole Kickstarter revolution. But you know, this was kind of a very early or very early kind of uh, form of of crowdsourcing and and involving uh, involving the fans in the creation of the game. Finally, to end things off in 1996, Accolade and Legend Entertainment released Star Control 3. This game retained the ship combat, but went into a more kind of real-time strategy, colony management direction. However, gameplay changes, um, inconsistencies with the plot from the previous games, and other issues resulted in this game being generally panned by fans, and uh, it's actually considered the poorest of the series. Uh, talk of a fourth game was rampant for a while after Star Control 3, but uh, Accolade canned the project in the early development stages. They wanted to do something more like a... Um, kind of a more action-packed X-Wing, like kind of a sitting behind the ship uh, shooting stuff instead of the same top-down, you know, realistic physics view, and that just ended up uh, ended up crapping out and uh, never happened. Wayne Henderson here, and I am excited to have three of the top Fringe Division agents with us today. So, since we're here, we might as well take advantage of the situation and just talk about 
about how the Fringe Casting with Wayne and Dan podcast is proud to be podcasting about this fifth and final season of the TV show Fringe? Oh, I'm sorry if at this moment when the universe is collapsing, I forgot the magic word. For magic word, you meant fringecastingpodcast.com, right? Well, let's not jump to conclusions. I'm not. I don't really know what to say. It's all right, Olivia. You go ahead and fight the Baldies with Etta out on the fringe, and I'll remind our friends to check out the Fringe Casting Podcast at fringecastingpodcast.com. Now, I'm off to get my co-host Dan out of some amber. Thank you for your attention and have a nice day. And egg sticks. So what does the future hold for Star Control? Well, in 2002, which I guess isn't really the future, it's actually, wow, 10 years ago, now that I think about it, that's kind of scary, um, Toys for Bob released the source code for the 3DO version of the game. This resulted in a very cool project called the Orquan Masters, effectively a free and open source version of Star Control 2 designed to run natively on modern systems. Now this project is in continuous development with its last release, uh, its last release version being, I think, version 0.70 from July 4th, 2011. So that's hardly even a year ago. Based on the Urquan Masters code, other developers have released native versions of Star Control 2 for the Wii and other consoles, and reports of an Xbox port are, uh, are also being heard. Finally, a really cool fan project called Project 6014-6014, or something like that, was started back in 2009. Its creator, Cedric Horner, took the original 2002 open source code and built a completely new story following the events of the second game. As of January 2012, a, download, a downloadable demo is out. Um, I look forward to hearing more about the completed game and uh, you can find more info on Project 6014 at code.google.com slash p slash project 6014. I'll put that link into the show notes. So time for another email. I got an email this week from Glenn, who pointed me at some cool Star Control stuff for this show. So Glenn writes, Joe, I have now listened to over half of your podcasts, and I have to say I find them to be first rate. Your performance is excellent, the production values are high, and the content is excellent. I'm surprised at the depth of detail you've been able to find on the history of these games. The games that you have discussed were either a fundamental part of my origin story, XCOM, Star Control, MechWarrior, SimCity, or they were around and I was always curious about them, but without the internet at the time, I never really learned what they were about. Of course, a lot of my friends played those games, and now I got a deeper understanding for them too. I am very much looking forward to your review of Star Control. I have spent way too much time of my life on that series. Personally, I had a blast playing the quest, but I was so obsessed with trying to beat my friend in Super Melee that I would pit armies of each ship against each other to try and figure out what ship was best against which. He would still always beat me with well-aimed blood home or brood home shots, teleporting Arilu, and just to add insult to injury, actually shooting my ships out of the sky with Shofixti. There's nothing more annoying than being defeated by a non-suicidal Shofixti. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about the Warlords and Spaceward Ho. However, these are best played with groups. Is Dungeon Master too old to review? It seems the ad that the advent of inexpensive app games bring the, this brings this world of gaming full circle. These style of games seem perfect for the modern common platform. I really appreciate the memories and the Kickstarters. Cheers and keep up the great work. Thanks a lot, Glenn. And you know, as of this point, I, I'm not really putting 
an early limit on on games that I'm going to review. I think kind of my rule will be as long as there's a DOS version of the game, then uh, then you know it's in the pool. Uh, you know, I do plan on covering maybe Zork one day or something like that, and I know that's even from the '70s, I think. But um, but yeah, you know, thanks for that, and you know, it's good to know people are enjoying the show, and and yeah, you know, it, 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 I surprise myself sometimes, as I said earlier in the show, with the amount of uh, information I can get online. I think the reason for that is like me, like you, like a lot of people that listen to the show, we're, we're big, we're, we were and still are big fans of these games. And I think, you know, people that are fans, especially, you know, for kind of geeks a little bit, uh, we like really digging deep into things. And, you know, over time, people would gather up information and, you know, make websites kind of, uh, you know, dedicated to their favorite game series. And over time, they were able to gather up all this information that, uh, you know, I look around and I gather up once again and talk about on the show for, for all of you guys. So so that's great. Uh, Glenn also pointed out something very, very cool to me. He writes a blog at blog.brickhero.com, which focuses on the Lego Kusu project. Uh, Kusu, I believe, is a site which is run by Lego itself. Community members submit Lego creations to be voted on by the community. And uh, if I'm not mistaken... Uh, Glenn, please correct me if I'm wrong, but winners are are kind of published and sold as official, uh, officially licensed Lego sets. So Glenn, being a Star Control fan, pointed me to an entry for a set of Lego versions of the ships of Star Control. I think this would be a very, very, very cool Lego set to have for retro gaming fans. Of course, it needs votes, so check it out. I will put the link in the show notes so you guys can go and look. Uh, the, the ships look like they're really well made. It's pretty impressive. So um, yeah, definitely go there and vote for that. Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So, if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. Where can you get Star Control today? Well, this, yet again, is an easy one. For starters, you can get all three Star Control games at GOG.com. The first two games come in a single package, and the third is standalone. They work super well. The first game loaded up right away and woke up my MT32 without issue. The second also launched without problems on my Windows 7 PC. Also, of course, there's the Oroquan Masters open source version, which can be downloaded for free from sc2.sourceforge.net. Not only is it available for Windows, but also for OS X, Linux, BSD, and a large list of other desktop and mobile OSs, including Android. I downloaded the Mac version, and it started up just fine on my MacBook Pro with uh, OS 10.8 Mountain Lion, the latest one anyways. And uh, and yeah, it, it looks super great. The only thing that I'm not 100% sure on is it did open in kind of a 640 by 480 window on my high-res screen, and there may be a way to drop it to full screen. I uh, I didn't get a chance to look into that. But anyways, it, it works great, and hey, it is free. So now that we talked about where to get it, we talked about the game, we talked about all that stuff, it's time to come to our conclusions. Does Star Control hold up today? Well, here's how I'll frame it. The first game is a touch simplistic. No real story. It feels more like an old-style arcade or console game than a PC game. You choose your sides, you fight your fight, and that's that. Even the scenarios, well, more complex, do lack the complexity and the storytelling that we are used to. So, original Star Control, eh. 
Star Control 2, however, took everything that was fun about the first game and they blasted into the stratosphere. Great storytelling, complex and interesting management game, upgradable flagship, incredible humor in the writing, great music. My God, this game, despite somewhat dated graphics, is incredibly fun and eminently replayable. Uh, you know, I can see why Star Control 2 is considered one of the best and most influential games of all time. It's on a lot of those lists. Even into today, you know, we look at games like, say, Mass Effect 2, the resource gathering mini game where you go from system to system, scan planets, and gather mineral deposits for equipment upgrades is a direct, direct lift from this game. It's a direct lift from Star Control 2. You know, this game series and the second game in particular is a huge recommend for me. Check it out. Heck, the open source version is is the full game and it's free. I mean, what have you got to lose aside from a bit of time? But if you're going to play it and have fun, then it's not a waste of time at all. Play these games. They are so much fun, especially the number two. Number one's all right, but number two is just great. I was having so much fun. I didn't even want to sit down to write the show. I wanted to keep playing the game. So, you know, that's it and that's it and... Play the game, my lord, so much fun. So that's that for another week. Next time around, in two weeks, I am heading back into id territory with my next big FPS title, Doom. I know there's going to be tons to say on this epic series. I know you guys have tons to say. I mean, who doesn't know about Doom? Who didn't play Doom? Who didn't play Doom 2? Who didn't see the really bad movie? Um, well, maybe a lot of people didn't, but hey, it's got the rock in it, so whatever. But anyways, Doom next time around. Uh, as usual, I want to thank James for the great gift that he left on my doorstep of all those discs. I want to thank Andreas and Glenn for this week's emails. As always, I love getting emails from you guys. Just keep them coming. Of course, I also love voicemails, so just send all those things in to podcast at umbcast.com. I, of course, read everything that comes in. At this point, there's enough so that I can respond to everything that comes in, and, uh, you know, I do. If you have any opinions about the show, if you have any suggestions as to things I should cover, if you don't like my voice, anything like that, drop me a line, drop me an email, and uh, I will most definitely try and get back to you as soon as possible. And if you want it read on the show, then I will certainly read it on the show. Uh, thanks again, as I do every week, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com if you want to look at any of his music, if you got your own podcast and you want some uh, some audio work done, if you have any type of other stuff like that. He does amazing, amazing, amazing work. He's very professional. And uh, yeah, check him out, moyermultimedia.com. Of course, you can always check out the show notes and more information about the show. And sometimes I should probably do it more than I do, but I post some uh, some blog posts over at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We do a lot of fun there. We got a lot, some people who've started posting uh, news stories very regularly. That's where I, I get a lot of the news stories that I talk about on the show. And we have some good discussions. We've been having a pretty good discussion there about, uh, you know, SimCity 5 and stuff that's been going on. Uh, we're talking about uh, the Chris Roberts uh, game that I talked about in the last show. And actually, I didn't mention in the news that one's actually um, reached its goal, but it's still got time left. If you want to get money into uh, Chris Roberts' Star Citizen game and all that, that's all on the Facebook group. We have a really, really great time over there. You guys should definitely come and check it out. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash show. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. I post pictures of uh, you know dumb stuff and food and complain about things. And, you know, if you want to hear more of me, my personal Twitter is the place to be. Uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Also leave us, uh, or leave me. There's no us. It's just me. <laughs> you can leave me 
a, uh, a review over on iTunes that gets uh, the show in more places, that gets it seen more, and that gets more people to, uh, to listen. You can stream it live at Stitcher Radio. Same thing over there. If you want to thumb it up or anything like that at Stitcher, I would greatly appreciate it because the more exposure we get, the more great old game fans get to, uh, get to come and interact with everyone and, uh, and have a great time. So that's it. Wow, I was talky there at the end. Woo. So anyways, that'll do for another week. And I hope to see you all next time for Doom in the Upper Memory Block. Battle Control Terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.